If you're an NFL head coach, you should read at least 20 books on decision-making every offseason. And then you should take whatever you've learned and you should integrate them into your decision-making. Hello, and welcome to the Decision Education Podcast, where we talk to experts and share tips on all things related to decision-making. I'm your season two guest host, Annie Duke, broadcasting from the Alliance for Decision Education, the educational nonprofit committed to the understanding that better decisions lead to better lives and a better society. In this season, we're turning our attention to decision-making in the world of high-performance sports. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll start to think differently about the critical role of decision-making in the competitive sports we follow so passionately, as well as discover practical ways to improve your own decision-making. Imagine what a difference it would make in your life and the lives of those you love if we were all even a little bit better at making decisions. The Alliance is building a national movement to bring decision education to every student in this country. But this podcast is for you, the adults who are already out in the world making thousands of decisions every day and who want to get better at it. I'm excited to welcome my guests today and my friend, Michael Lombardi. Michael has spent three decades as a football executive and media analyst working alongside coaching and general manager legends Bill Walsh of the San Francisco 49ers, Al Davis of the Oakland Raiders, and Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots, among others. A former NFL general manager and three-time Super Bowl winner, Michael is a speaker on leadership and author of Gridiron Genius, a masterclass in building teams and winning at the highest level, as well as the host of the GM Shuffle podcast. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you, Annie. I appreciate it. Thanks to have you. I, 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 your ears must have been ringing because I spoke to the University of Arizona's football team last week, and one of the coaches on the team, the offensive line coach, is Brandon Carroll, Pete Carroll's son. Oh. And so in my presentation, I always talk about the play, the play that really made you and I become friends because you started your book with the play. I started my book with the play. And, you know, and I, and I, talked about the play as it really was about culture. And you talk about the play as it was the right call. So it kind of was interesting to give that presentation in front of a carol, should I say, which probably brought back bad memories. It might not have been the best thing to do, but uh, <laughs> anyway. Well, actually, I, you know, I'd love to start there. So first of all, just I'd love to hear your telling of the story of how we ended up getting connected to each other. So I, you know, I love reading leadership books and somebody, I don't know if somebody sent me your book or I, or I read it or one of, I have a bunch of friends that have been incredible friends to me that I've met over the years. Ken Sigaleski is one of them and he lives in Hartford, Connecticut, and he constantly sends me stuff through internet, through email, through text, always trying to engage my mind. And I think he sent me your copy of your book. And when I opened it up and I read your beginning of your book about the play for the people listening to this, it was Super Bowl 49. There were it was 24 seconds left to go in the game. Annie starts talking about why running the ball would have been the dumbest call of all time and throwing was right. And I opened my book up talking about the same thing from different perspectives, from completely different perspectives. So anyway, so that's how we, and then I, I reached out. I can remember sending you an email and, and, and connecting and that's how we did. Yeah. So yeah, you just, you lobbed into me and, and what I remember is, Hey, 
I have a book coming out in September, which was Gridiron Genius. And I opened my book with the exact same play that you do. And that was back in 2018. We've been friends ever since. But what I what I loved about the way that we talked about those different perspectives has to do with, I think, what both of us talk about quite a bit with decision making. So I was talking about it just from let's work out the odds and figure out was it better for Pete Carroll to call a pass play or to call a running play. And for people who maybe don't know, he called a pass play. It was intercepted. And I think people still today are saying that was the worst call in Super Bowl history. And you, of course, were coming at it from the perspective of having been with the Patriots, knowing Bill Belichick, knowing the way he thinks, knowing what was going on. And I'd just love to hear your take of the other side of it from the standpoint of what was the decision making and and how does that show us how great Bill Belichick really was? Well, remember, this is the biggest stage you could possibly be on, right? And he had prepared the team for this situation going back to March. And I wrote about it in Gridiron Genius, where he basically told the defensive staff, hey, we need a goal line defense, which meant we need five big guys in the defensive front. And we need three corners in the back end that can play the pass. So we want to be strong against the run, but not weaken ourselves against the pass. And we practiced that in all of May during our OTA days, all of June during our training, during our minicamp days. And then we practiced it all of training camp, July and August, and then all during the season every Friday, and then all in January getting ready for playoff games. And the first time we actually called that defense was on that time with 24 seconds left to go. Of course, naturally, I'm in the press box screaming, call timeout, call timeout. And Belichick is just staring at Pete Carroll's sideline, and he sees them somewhat disorganized. And he says, play goal line nickel. So we trot on a college free agent who was never drafted, who played at West Alabama, who only is playing in the game because the kid he played behind got benched at halftime. And he makes the play of the game. Malcolm Butler intercepts the pass and we win. And so it was really a decision making that was lended itself by preparation, observation, and then being able to be able to capture the moment at the right time. And his thought process with a zillion people screaming in his ear to call timeout, with a zillion people telling him what to do, he was able to block out the distractions and the noise and just focus on what he wanted to do. And that's what makes him so effective. Yeah, I, I think that's so, so amazing because you you talk about really what it takes to be a great decision maker. And there seems to be some really unusual things about Bill Belichick that most people aren't able to do. And it seems to be things that addle other people who are in his position. One of them is what are other people going to think, right? Because you, you get into this position where other people are yelling at you to do certain things, like in this case, like call a timeout, for example, or in Pete Carroll's case, actually, to run the ball. And somehow I, I feel like the greats are able to step back from that and see the situation and be willing to go against consensus and be okay with that. That's certainly one of them. But another one that you talk about that I think is so interesting that I'd love to d- dig into with Belichick is you really hone in on the idea that he's really good at cutting ties and understanding when when you have to cut the ties. So so. I think one of the examples that you you talk about is trading Drew Bledsoe in 2002. But I'd love to understand sort of how you think about that in relation to Belichick and, and why you think that that is such a hallmark for him of something that makes him very special. I think Belichick doesn't see his job as a football coach, right? He sees his job as a, as a trader, a hedge fund manager. And, and so if you run a giant hedge fund, you're constantly looking at the fund to see how it's performing. And you don't love the fund, you love the money. 
You love the performance. And when the performance isn't doing well, you want to get rid of the performance. Belichick's mind works like that. There, there's this personal love affair that goes into coaching. I love my players. I love my guys. I'll fight for them. Great. That's wonderful. But there's also the aspect of the job that requires analytical, clinical thinking. When the fund isn't performing, we've got to do something with the fund. And so Drew Bledsoe's that fund, if we call him a fund for lack of a, even though he's a person, he was under, he was underperforming based on the value he was being paid based on the, the the production he was lending. So for Belichick, that's an easy decision. I'm getting rid of an asset that underperforms in exchange for something that I can recoup my value. And that's how he analyzes every decision he makes. And it's hard. Bill Walsh was exactly the same way. He saw himself as a trader hedge fund operator, that he was going to be divorce himself from the emotional attachment. And it's hard for us to do when making decisions. There's so many biases that come in. You know, I like that guy. He's good part of the team. You know, it, you know, it's challenging for me, you know, make excuses for him. Well, you know, it was a tough year, COVID. Belichick's very clinical about it and he makes those decisions and he moves forward. And I think it's partly because he's able to not really attach himself to the person, he's really looking at the value of the of the stock. So I, I think I think that that particular quality that you hone in on is so interesting because there there's work actually from somebody named Barry Staw that shows that you can actually predict the playing time in the NBA of a player based on their draft pick, separate and apart from skill. So if you just completely normalize for skill and you take two equally skilled players, the one that was the higher draft pick will get more playing time. And in fact, even if they're lower in skill, they'll they'll get more playing time and they're less likely to be traded. So now you're talking about Belichick and it feels like you're saying he he doesn't fall into that trap at all. He's so he's in fact the opposite and he's quite he's quite clinical about it. Are there other ways in which you can you can think that that you know this kind of going against consensus? I mean, because I, I sort of feel like this is now you've given two examples of this. This ability to do something that other people can't, both in the trading and then also in this sort of ignoring the noise in your ear, you know, to call a timeout, call a timeout, and he kind of knows what he's supposed to do. Are there other things about those coaches that you see that are similar? I think what he's really able to do more than anything is is he doesn't fall for the na- narrative. He, he always generates his opinion from the anti-narrative. And I think Munger speaks to this. You know, Munger talks about how he spends most of his career coming up with an idea and as soon as he does, he wants to spend the rest of his time destroying the idea, right? And that's really what he's after. He's after the destruction of his own ideas, and he gains great pleasure from it. He thinks it's the reason for success. So, and, and Belichick understands there's a narrative about things because remember, the world that he's coaching in or working in has a outside forces called the media. So they drive a narrative that could be completely false, but they drive the narrative and they can sway public opinion. Belichick takes the anti-approach. If I said to Belichick, player Y is a great player, he would spend most of his time trying to figure out why I'm wrong. Whereas most people would just say, well, if you think that's good, then I think that's good too. I want to go, I want to be with you. Belichick is comfortable being uncomfortable. He's comfortable being in an uncomfortable situation. And for him, he's not trying to, and I just heard Adam Grant say this in his new book, and I think it's just so good. He said, I don't want you to think what I think. I want you to understand how I think. And I think that's what Belichick's trying to do is how are you thinking? 
I don't care what you think. I want to know how you think about it. And most of the time in the NFL, 90% of the people, they think based on the narrative that they read. You're talking about Bill Belichick. You're talking about Bill Walsh. I mean, obviously, like the greats of the game. So you're Michael Lombardi. What is your journey? Like, how, how do you end up? I mean, you're talking about the greatest people in the game and really having this, having this relationship with them where you can, can get inside of their head. So, so how does it all start for you? It starts simply, you know, the, there's an old saying, the world gets out of the way for somebody who knows where they want to go. I knew where I wanted to go at an early age, you know, and I knew I wanted to be in football. I knew I wanted to be a general manager. And I just tried to plot a course to get there. And I ended up at UNLV working for free. And I got a job, my first job in 1984. I was a scouting intern to drive Coach Walsh around. I made $20,000. I lived in this apartment in Menlo Park that no way was, was an apartment. It was a, it was a garage with a wall in it. <laughs> and I, I got robbed often because I, <laughs> the address was Menlo Park, but it was really East Palo Alto. I got fooled on the zoning. And, you know, and I got robbed a bunch. And so I just was able to learn. I mean, you know, I think one of the hardest things in, in learning is there has to be a real true interest in learning. You know, like if you put math problems in front of me, I'm probably going to be bad at it. But you put Coach Walsh in front of me and I can ask him questions about something I love. I'm going to learn a lot. And I was able to drive them in a car and I was able to take them and I played carpool karaoke with them. And I asked them a thousand questions and I, and he would answer me. And one of the questions that he answered me that I, and I, and I'm humbly say this to you is he said, do you, do I know, do you know who Tom Peters is? And I said, no coach, I have no idea who Tom Peters is. Well, he said, he just wrote a book with Bob Waterman called In Search of Excellence. Go over to the Stanford bookstore because there was no Amazon in 1984. Mm. <laughs> And buy the book and read it. And I did. And it changed my life. I have it on my shelf signed by Peters today because it changed my life because it got me into Warren Bennis. It got me into Peter Drucker. It got me into these people, these management, because Walsh wanted me to think like, not like a coach. He thought coaches were, he used to call them sometimes gym teachers because they would just roll the ball out and let everybody play kickball. He wanted to be intellectually challenging. And from that moment, he influenced my life. And that made me get into these areas, which then helped me get hooked up with Belichick, who's, I, I wouldn't say Bill's read a thousand books on Warren Bennis or, or on Peter Drucker or, you know, or any of that, but he practices that just through his own ability, much from the Naval Academy. I mean, Belichick grew up in the Naval Academy. So all the leadership principles and all the ways that he believes in are truly Navy principles that he just took with him when he grew up. So I, I hear this theme of, you know, you have football coaches. And then you have these guys. And these guys are thinking in a different way. They're, they're getting down deep into what makes a great decision maker and, and, and thinking about decisions as predictions of the future. And sounds like even like when you start to think about trading, the way that you're talking about it, they're thinking like, what's the expected value of this player? How much am I paying for this player? And you know, obviously we can think about, you know, what happens with Billy Bean and people start to really think about baseball that way. But it doesn't seem to be something that has made its way into the NFL in the same way. And I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts on, obviously, Belichick and Walsh are such standouts in the way that they, they think in this more analytical way. Why do you think the NFL, is it something cultural? Is it something about the type of person who becomes a head coach has been pretty slow to adopt comparatively? 
slow to adopt these kinds of more analytical you know, data driven approaches, even if you just look at something like what's the quality of their fourth down decisions, which we actually have quite a few analytics on, right? We, have, we know a lot about that. Yeah. I, I think a lot of this comes from the fact that coaches are taught the scheme first, not leadership first. So we always think coach is a great leader, but in leadership, you have to have a lot of, a lot of expertise in different areas to help you lead. And I think Belichick, through the naval experience, understood that. You know, Parcells, through the, his army background, learned to do that. We don't spend enough time on teaching leadership. And part of teaching leadership is part of making decisions. I mean, there should be, if you're an NFL head coach, you should read at least 20 books on decision making every offseason. And then you should take whatever you've learned from your books, from you know, so many Adam Grant's book, all these books on decision making, you should integrate them into your decision making. And yet we don't have that because we don't have the curiosity. We just think it's going to, well, I don't really have, that's not a hard decision. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say to you, well, the decision is A or B? No, you, there's never an A or B decision. It's always A, B, C, D, and E. And the ones who can see the C, D, and E's are the people that make better decisions. And yet in the NFL, I think we just spend so much time Oh, well, it's the scheme. I got to get a quarterback or I got to get, and then they don't spend enough time in, in their own development, their own growth mindset. And I think that's what hurts. So let me ask you a question, you know, as far as this kind of separation of leadership from sort of living in a scheme and, and trying to, you know, slot in that, you know, who goes into the scheme. It sounds a little bit like, like the, the thing that I'm curious about is this ability to sort of step outside and say, I need to read a bunch of books. I need to think about how to develop myself as a leader. I need to think about what the alternatives are that are different than the ones that I'm already thinking about. Don't you think that that's somewhat inherently difficult for someone who's risen to the position of somebody who is a head coach? I mean, you know, I wonder how much you think there's this danger that goes along with success that, well, you're successful. So you have the answers. And then this idea of reading 20 books in the off season, well, why would I have to do that? Because I think you, 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 to, for you to continue to have success, you have to have curiosity. You've got to be able to, like you write books, I write books, right? So when you read other people's books or you go for a walk in the afternoon, you come up with a better idea for your own book, you know, and, and you come up with different ways to, to, you listen to Adam Grant's book or read his book, or you listen to Malcolm Gladwell or listen to Tim Hartford's podcast on, you know, the cautionary tale. You basically learn something that you can apply to what you're doing. You're not going to be an expert in everything, but you've got to have curiosity to learn about everything. And I think that's what falls short, you know, and we get so busy caught up in the moment, right? I got to do my job. I got to do the job. No, your job is, if I said that to 99%, 0.9% of the coaches, did you work out today? They would all say, yeah. If I asked them if they read a book today, they would say, I don't have time to read a book. So what they tell you with that statement is their, their mindful health is not as important as their physical mm -hmm. health. And so would you, would you say that's the biggest mistake that you see head coaches making is they just stop, they stop growing intellectually? They do. And, and most of the time, the re look, it's a harder job to get to the United States Senator. There's only 32 of them. So it's a challenging job to get, right? So what happens is they get consumed by the job. They don't really know how to do the job. So they're on the job. They know they have two or three years to succeed at the job. So everything is, everything is based on situational values, not sustainable values. 
So they make every decision based on situations, not on how I can sustain something because the owners are so willing to make changes so rapidly. So it's, it's really, it's a system that eats its own. Yeah. So that, that's actually, I'm so happy that you brought that up because that, that's a question that, that I'd love to sort of dig in with you on. So if you're, if you're Bill Walsh or you're Bill Belichick, it, it feels like the career risk you know, at least at the point that I could say their names and people would know who they were. It feels like they're somewhat protected by, you know, from career risk, right? What's going to happen when the fans start screaming and you do something weird and you go for it on fourth and five and you lose this really important game. And it it feels like their jobs are always, their jobs are always at risk. So I, sort of two two things and, and go in whichever direction. One is how much do you think that matters, the, just the, the structure of the NFL and the culture of the NFL in terms of how much head coaches get backed up and are allowed to to be creative and, and, and to do things that are maybe less consensus by the, you know, the GM or the owner, right? And what, what, how is that negatively impacting or positively impacting decision-making? But then the second thing I'd love to know about is kind of a chicken and the egg problem, right? Is it that someone like a Belichick or a Walsh is naturally thinking that way? This is what gets them to the point where they have the great success that then obviously builds on itself and frees it up. Or do they, do they have, are they good and they have success early and then they become great partly because they have the protection of the success? I think that they become great because they're willing to go against the current. They're willing to zig when everybody else zags. You know, and I think if you study any great movement, it's always been a zig against zag. And I think you have to have conviction of your heart. I think if you know you're on a short-term deal, you know, let's use Pete Carroll, for example. So Pete Carroll is the head football coach of the New York Jets. It's his first job as becomes a head coach. And he waited most of his career. He did it exactly the way you did it. He went from college, worked his way up through college, became a coordinator in college, became a linebacker coach in the NFL, became a coordinator in the NFL. He gets his first job as the head coach of the New York football Jets. The owner of the Jets at the time is a man by the name of Leon Hess. Leon Hess of Hess Oil. It's a brilliant man. Leon Hess is a brilliant man. He's from Asbury Park, New Jersey. You know, he's started out in this family business. He it went bankrupt during the Depression. He brought it back. And now he's one of the wealthiest men in the world. Well, Leon Hess is should be a good judge of character. So after a bad season with Pete Carroll as the head coach, he has an opportunity to hire Rich Cotite as the head coach of the Jets. Oh, I was I lived in Philadelphia in the eighties. That's mm-hmm. right. Of course okay. you did. So, you, so now you know that here's the, one of the smartest and best businessmen of the world actually thinks he's going to fire Pete Carroll, okay, to then hire Rich Cotite. And people in Philly laughed at him, much like you are. Okay. Yes, I, you, yes if people could see my face right now, they would see it. Right. I'm like, who, what? <laughs> so he fires P- Pete Carroll. And so now Pete Carroll's depressed. He's just lost his job. So a couple years later, Pete Carroll gets hired in New England. After two years in re- reaching the playoff, he then gets fired again. This time, Belichick replaces him. So he's gone from the worst coach replacing him to now, which is the best coach complacent him. But here's the point of the story that I think people need to understand. What happened then was Pete Carroll said, you know, I'm tired of doing it other people's way. He got the head coaching job at USC and he went back to USC. He read John Wooden's book and he said, you know what? I am going to do what I do. I'm going to be Pete Carroll. I'm not going to be a, a phony. I'm not going to be what another version of somebody else. I'm going to be the Pete Carroll that I know. And he had great success. And he's taken that from USC to Seattle. But it took those two moves to get there. I think oftentimes as leaders, we want to put our toe in the water. Well, we're not really ready for that. 
We're not really ready to do that. You know, I don't have the backing of the front office. Look, you're going to get fired if you do it the other way because imitation leadership is the quickest way to get fired. I think that's, so I, I love that what you just said. You know, I think that a lot of times as decision makers, we get caught up in trying to fend off kind of the short term result, right? And when we're doing that, what we give up is real long term success. So if you think about if you if you think about Belichick, Bill Walsh, maybe throw Pete Carroll in there, they're all they are all obviously great. But what you're saying is they all also make their own path, right? Like the whole point is that they're different, and that's what makes them great. If you were to think about let let's just say let's say Bill Walsh and Bill Belichick, who you're so intimately acquainted with, what are the things that like if you had to pick one thing that's similar between the two of them that makes them great, and then one thing that is different, like a, a difference between the two of them that separately makes each of them great? Well, I think that what makes them both great is their ability to think differently than everybody else and their ability to be divergent in thought and come up with solutions based on the hand they're dealt, not based on what everybody else is doing. And I think the difference is fairly easy. What they're opposite against is Belichick is trained defensively and he knows offense really well through that training. Walsh is trained offensively and knows defensively really well through that training. And so for them, which most people wouldn't realize is because of their training, they spent more time understanding the opposite of their training to help their training. And that approach, it, like my two sons are coaches. And I and and so this offseason, one works for the Patriots, one works for the Panthers. Like your job this offseason is to, is to pretend you're the defensive coordinator of the New Orleans Saints. And so learn Dennis Allen's defense like it's nothing you like you know it better than the back of your hand. And then your job is to learn, you know, Todd Bowles defense, you know. And then once you learn defense, now you can attack that defense or attack that offense in ways that you're not used to doing and it helps you broaden your scope. So I love that cuz immediately what comes to mind is is that you know what what Kahneman talks about with inside and outside view. Right. That what what you're telling me is that their history, one is a defensive coordinator and one is an offensive coordinator, allowed them to shift between the two because in order to really understand how to run a great defense, you have to get to the outside view and look at it from the perspective of the offense. Exactly. And vice versa. And so immediately I think about how are you thinking about getting out of your own perspective into the perspective of someone who who's looking at you from the outside. And if you can marry those the two things together, great decision making will arise. Right. And so then you have enough confidence to walk into a defensive meeting room if you're Walsh and say, look, this is not going to work because here's really the way they do it. Or Belichick walking into an offensive room and saying, here's how they're doing this and here's why. So it gives you, it broadens your knowledge and now it makes you a, a well-rounded coach and you're not sitting down the hall when the conversation is going on and you're not sure what to say. So I, I will like I, I would like to say hearing that about Walsh and Belichick is now giving me some trauma about Buddy Ryan. Right, exactly. Right? No, yeah. Buddy had no interest. Buddy or John Gruden or these, you know, they refuse to move themselves out of their comfort zone. You know, have you ever watched The Wire? Yes, the, the, yes. Okay, season two of The Wire is about the port and, and it's about Frank Sabaka and Frank Sabaka's devotion to the port and how they need to dredge the port and how they need to do everything. Because he's remembering when. 
And when you remember when in the job that you're in, you'll be gone. And you can't do that. Remember when is the worst form of conversation and it's the worst thing you can do. Sabaka was, you know, we fought for this country. We made stuff here. Well, you, you've, you've missed the boat, Frank. You're no longer, you know, that, that's not what, what's going on here. And so you've got to understand that. And if you constantly like, buddy, I'm going to do what I do, what I do, what I do, and you never evolve or adapt, eventually it gets you. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm thinking about that. And obviously he built such an incredible defense, right? You had Jerome Brown, Reggie White, Clyde Simmons. I mean, it was ridiculous. It was completely ridiculous. And meanwhile, Randall Cunningham was 70 something percent of the offense. Right. Uh, so, so you know, when I hear you talking about this, it, it seems like the opposite of that. Someone who isn't able to see the other side of the ball. Nor care to see it. Or nor care to see it. Right. It's, it's so interesting. And immediately brought up some trauma from being, you know, in Philadelphia in the <laughs> 1980s. So, I, you know, I'm interested. I'm really interested in, in one thing that you said, though. You talk about this total single-minded goal to get to be a GM, which of course you you did, right? I mean, you, you did with the Browns. But I find it so interesting that you say that because when I think about your career and you as, a, as what you've done in your life, I actually don't see someone who went down a single-minded path without being able to think outside of that. I mean, first of all, just from how much you were listening to Bill Walsh and immediately, most people wouldn't have taken that advice. And what do I need to go read these books that aren't about football? right? Who are, who are single-minded. And then the, the different places that you ended up in football and then obviously getting into media and podcasting and what you do with The Ringer. And then you write this amazing, really leadership and decision-making book. And you start thinking about how do you take what, what is happening in football and spread that across into other areas to help people become better leaders, to become better decision-makers, because you saw the lack of it in the NFL. So I just love to hear your thoughts on that because you describe yourself as so single-minded and I see you as such a polymath. Well, I think I think what, what happened to me was I it took me 60, 58 years to really find my niche. You know, I think that <laughs> I think the job that I'm currently in is is the best job for me. It's the best job for me because I can offer advice and counsel to those who ask and I can give it without worrying about the implications of that advice, whether they enact it or not. When you work in a building, you know, when you work for an organization, you're in two kinds of jobs, jobs you can make a difference in or jobs you can grow from. And oftentimes I was always trying to make a difference in a job that I could only grow from, which causes you harm in your career. When you're trying can, to make a difference- Can you explain the difference? Well, because of, uh, of the hierarchy, if you're in a job you can only grow from, when people won't listen to you above you and you give an opinion that's different than theirs, you're disloyal. So gotcha. you really can only, you can't make a difference. You can only grow from it. And I had a hard time understanding that. And so for me, I was always the guy that, well, Lombardi's really smart, but you know, he, he, he's not very loyal because he'll just say whatever he thinks. Well, you know, that's probably why I'm better at this job than I was doing the other job because I wasn't, I can do this without having to worry about upsetting the room. And mm. I can get give counsel. And I love writing and I love being able to put my thoughts on paper. So it's taken me a long time to get here, but I think I finally found the right the right role for me in my career. And it not necessarily with the media, but more with the writing and the consulting, because that gives me the same feelings that I would have working for a team to try to improve a team. And it, and it's all, whether it's hockey, which I help a team in hockey, whether it's football, where I help those, 
it's all the same. It, the sports are insignificant. The, the culture is always going to remain the same. So I think it took me a long time to figure out that I was, I always thought it would be, I would be bored doing a job. And I never felt bored in the NFL, but now looking back, I was probably more bored than ever. Mm. You know, I, I, I just, it's so interesting what you just said, because, you know, as I think about decision-making, even in our discussion about inside outside view and how are you seeing the other side of the ball, somebody willing to speak up and, and disagree is such a valuable thing to have in your presence. It's such a valuable thing, you know, what a valuable person. And I think it's interesting when you go back to this idea of what makes a great leader, what happens in these organizations, how are you thinking about, I'm just in my scheme and I need to fill the spot and you need to know your place and whatnot, you know, that that feels like it fits in so much with that sort of what what's happening in the culture is that is part and parcel of you were always wanting to say what you thought and 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 where you saw things differently. And people were like, we don't want any of that. Right. And what I you know, it's taken me a long time to get here. And the one of the greatest things that, that has gotten me here has been two years ago. It'll be it'll be two years ago in this July. I, I started with three other gentlemen, George Raveling, who was the former head coach at USC in basketball. He was a former head coach at Washington State in basketball. He was the former head coach at Iowa in basketball. He's a Villanova, played at Villanova, grew up in Washington. He, he actually, Annie, owns the I Have a Dream speech. He was on the stage the day Martin Luther King gave that speech. And when Dr. King walked off the stage, Coach Raveling said, can I have a copy of that speech? And Dr. King folded it and handed it to him. So Millie and I were living in LA at the time. I was writing Gridiron Genius and I, he and I would go to lunch, dinner once a week, twice a month. And we read Trillion Dollar Coach. And we said, you know, we should write a daily email for people to read that gives them a coach every day in their email box. So we started the Daily Coach. Mm. And in less than two years, you know, we have over 25,000 email subscribers every morning and it's forced me to write along with Coach Rav. We have another young man named Kamadi Ramsey, Trevor Clapp writes and Alex Servassier writes too. So we have five different people that kind of, we, we don't put our names on anything we write. So it's always different. I would be remiss, Michael, if I did not ask you about Stratomatic. <laughs> me and Eric, yeah. Well, that's what started it all. That's what started it all for me because I grew up in this little beach town and I played that Stratomatic baseball game. It was a dice game. They still have it. I still have my boards in my office downtown. I played it and I got fascinated with drafting. I got fascinated with building teams and it just became my, in the summer of you know, whenever I, I can remember it by the songs on the record, because we used to have a radio that we would play. We were playing the game. So we would, you know, listen to the music as we were doing it. And the only time we'd go to the beach, if if we thought Linda Bosvichel was on the beach in her bikini, we would run down there and go for a swim. <laughs> but other than that, we were not leaving the room. So I'm curious. So I know a few people who who played a lot of Stratomatic when they were young, as you know, including including my husband. And they are they all seem to be amazing decision makers, by the way. What do you think that you were getting from Stratomatic? I mean, obviously you were deep into that game. What what do you think you were getting from Stratomatic that wasn't being taught in school? Like I, I mean, in some sense, what I'm asking is, would would we be better off as a society if kids were taught something like Stratomatic or playing something like Stratomatic when they were in school? Yeah, I think it's called second order thinking. I think that's what we learn at Stratomatic. You know, if I do this, what's the effect of that and how would I, that decision affect my next decision? It's a little bit like we should all play chess, you know, and Stratomatic was the chess version for me. It, it forced me to think strategically and second order thinking. 
once I make this decision, where am I going? What am I going to do? And if I move that, if I move that player here, where do I fill in the blanks over there? You know, and and now since then, I've always tried to have second order thinking in my life. If I did this, what's the where would I go from there? And what would I do? Drafting players. If I draft player Y, what's the back door? Where do I get out of this if something falls? So I think we should all teach our kids second order thinking or have them play games that require it. Mm. So if you could switch out in school trigonometry for stratomatic. Oh, it'd be perfect for me. I could do it. I mean, you can't any math equation. That's why I married Millie. She's an accountant, so I have to worry about it, you know? <laughs> so what do you, you know, obviously, I mean, you're so deep in this and you... You're you're now consulting. You know, I love, by the way, that you're now consulting with teams because they're hiring you to disagree with them. So right. now you get I you think, get to finally be in that role. And I tell them all this. I think to me, the greatest what you should open up in every building is a change department. You should have somebody who basically you hire. That's that every idea you have, their job is to come in and have you change their mind. Mm. Just call them the change department. Yeah, have three guys sit in the room and say, "Okay, we want to do play. Tell me why we shouldn't do it." Yeah, I mean that that that's that idea of seeing it from the other side of the ball, right? You see it clear. Yeah, and just everywhere in your life try to see it from the other side of the ball. So, obviously you've been you've been such a friend to the Alliance for Decision Education and such a, an amazing practitioner yourself, obviously. So you've seen it, you know, I imagine you, as you think about sort of what are the effects of the way that we teach kids today in terms of their decision making, you're seeing it kind of across the board, both in terms of like what's happening on the organizational level, what's happening with coaches, but also what, you know, what's how how equipped are the players to make great decisions for themselves. What do you think would look different, you know, not just in football, but also in society, if we started actually thinking really clearly about, you know, a focus on how do we teach kids to be great decision makers? And we made that a focus of education. To make good decisions, you have to really go through all the biases and explain to them what the biases are, because most kids don't even understand that there's a competitive bias that's in in something that they're doing, or there's a you know a a comfortable bias, or there's you know a prejudice bias. I mean, I think if we could teach that that look, all decisions have these form of biases in them, and if we can rid ourselves of the bias, we'll make better decisions. But if we're not aware of them, how do we do that? If we're not aware of them, how do we do that? And I think that's what we should teach. What do you think what do you think the ripple on effects for society would be if we actually got really good at that? I think we'd all make better decisions. And I think the other thing that we would do, we'd process information that the media has given us. Mm. I think part of our inability, a part of our problems is the, the the media has done such a good job of delivering information to us that it's eliminated us from having to ask the question, is this good information or bad information? And if we take bias out, if we start to learn about bias, we'll we'll challenge the news outlets to present better news to us, to present better informed news to us, to not slant the direction. And I'm not Republican or Democratic. This is not a political conversation. It would be how do they present it to us? I learned this the other, you know, so I'm a nerd, right? So I love, I love the NBA and I love to listen to coaches talk. And when I was growing up and, and up until the point where you know, we didn't have 24-7 news channels, I would constantly read the newspaper every morning to see what the coach said at his press conference. And in every article, whether it was the Inquirer, the Bulletin, the Daily News, whatever the news outlet was, I would get, I would read it. And I would read the quotes from the coach. Well, once, once 
they started putting the coach on television at a news conference. I didn't have to do that anymore. And my my news intake was completely different because I was watching him and I removed the third party of the interpretation. I removed whatever bias was in there. It was filtered directly to me. And I took the news in in a better light. I think we have to get to that. And I think if we could teach bias and how people are giving us information, whether they intend to or not, I think it would be more powerful. It sounds like, I mean, you know, maybe I'm, I'm kind of stretching too far here. But what I hear in everything that you said is this kind of through line, like even when we're talking about like what made Walsh and Belichick so great is this idea of like, are you just living in the scheme, right? With everybody saying, this is how you do things and just slot things into that. Even in our own life, like, you know, you you do this, you go to your job, you make decisions the way they've been made, you follow whatever the rules are and don't go beyond that, right? That, that That's what a lot of people are doing. And then you have some people who emerge from that who are getting outside of themselves, looking at from the outside, trying to find creative alternatives, constantly questioning, trying to prove they're wrong and saying, I don't accept that the scheme is the scheme. And I feel like when you're talking about this in terms of, you know, how can we really improve society through decision education, then I'm hearing something that's very thematically similar. Don't assume that that what you're seeing, you know, what you see is what you get. Think for yourself, think outside of that, try to find the source, process that information yourself, think about it from different angles, be creative. And that that really, in the end, if we could create more thinkers like that, that that would have a really deep and positive effect on society. You know, I think that's exactly right. And I think that we, we all have to focus on what it is we're really trying to understand. That's essentially what our jobs are, is to figure out what the story is. And if we can't do that, if we're relying on ABC or CBS or to get the story, then there's a filter in it. And then we've got the bias that's coming in. Al Davis taught me that years ago. There's a reason why that story is written the way it's written. You figure out why. I, I just love this you know, idea of we have to equip people to be able to figure out what, what is the story, what is true, right? What, what do you do about it? How do you try to navigate your own decisions so that you aren't just going along with consensus, that you're willing to figure out what you want and make your own path? And I feel like so much of that is, is in here. So, so let me just add, I mean, you, I think you probably you know, somewhat answered this, but what, what decision-making strategy, like if you had one decision-making strategy that you could pass down to the next generation of decision-makers, what would it be? Whatever you think is the right answer, work hard to disprove it. The change room. Everybody should create their own change room. Right. I love that. I love that. I'm going to ask you what book you would recommend for listeners who really want to improve their decision making. I know Adam Grant is one of the answers for sure, but uh, so I'll answer, I'll answer one, but I'll give you a second one. I, I'm reading that now. I, I think that, you know, it's, I think the other thing is I would read Sherlock Holmes. You know, I would read his ability to use deductive reasoning and trying to find the variables, to see the non-obvious. How does he go from A to B to C to D? I think the, the people that read Sherlock Holmes or Arthur Conan Doyle uh, or Peter Belvin, he's written a bunch of books about decision-making. They're fascinating books. And he uses Sherlock Holmes as kind of a, a model. And I think that Maria Kornikova did the same thing. She wrote a book with that. And she yeah, just called Mastermind. Yeah. Mastermind. But she also wrote another book about decision making from playing world class poker, much like you. So I think any 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 way we could take people that use that and apply it to our lives, that's what I would do. 
So obviously, Gridiron Genius is so just such an amazing book and taking this framework of, you know, decision making in football. And how can we really understand that that's really a, a good laboratory for understanding decision making in life and leadership qualities and, and what makes somebody excel and be great? You know, and, and you're actively doing the consulting, the newsletter, the media. So I, I just have to assume that you aren't done writing and and you oh, have no. another book in you. So I, I'd like I'd love to hear I'd love to hear if you have another book in the works. You know, the, the other book in me, I, I it, it has to be in me. David, I, I listened to David Crosby once on television. He was talking about singer songwriters and he said, you know, when you are a young singer songwriter and you get in front of a record label and you give them 15 songs, you spent 20, 23, 24 years of your life working on those songs. It's your whole life, right? Your true talent comes when you write your next batch of songs, right? That's your true talent. That, that to me is what's motivating me to write another book because that book was easy to write in the sense that I was gifted, not because it was easy for me to write, but it was easy for me to be in that arena humbly around these great leaders. Then my next book I want to take on is I want to look at the great players and try to break down. Because if you enter the Hall of Fame, you're Annie Duke and you get voted into the Hall of Fame. And I'm Michael Lombardi and I get voted in the Hall of Fame. There's a distinction between the two of us. We both wear a green jacket. We both belong. But in what way do we belong? And not one size fits all. So my next book is going to talk about the game from the coaching to the players to the media and how it's influenced the narrative that's created some popular myths in the game. And it's also hurt some players that should be along in the Hall of Fame. So I, I love that because I think it goes along with the theme of what we've been talking about, which is get on the other side of the ball. So this is looking from from different perspectives at a similar problem to try to find some amazing lessons. And I, I assume that's where you're going is right to, to, to help people become better decision makers and better leaders and just better at navigating their own paths. I think we have to take, you know, it's easy you know, if you're a baseball scout, they say there's four kinds of baseball scouts, right? So just assume we're all in, in decision making, we're basically scouts. So we're gathering information. That's what scouts do. They gather information. That's what we do in decision making. So there's the poor scout that can't really gather information, can't make a decision. There's the picker scout who picks on one thing that's wrong with it and just stays with it until the death. That's Frank Sabaka, right? And then there's the the production scout that just grades the production. Oh, this guy did this, this, and this, even though we don't know how good. And then there's the projection. How do we project this decision further? That's what we all want to be. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I mean, think, I'm, I'm sure you've read Super Forecasting that really that's what every decision is, right? It's like a projection of what the future is going to be, but integrating the knowledge of what's in the present. And if you just stick with understanding what exists today, you'll miss what exists tomorrow. So I, I, I love that. I love, I can't wait. I hope, I hope I'll be able to read an early copy. There you go. Maybe I, I have an so in too. with the author. You will. You will. You have an in. So for, for listeners who want to find out more about you, where can they go? Well, first, I would recommend signing up for the Daily Coach email. It's dailycoach.substack. It's, uh, you just Google Michael Lombardi and Daily Coach, and it'll come up. You can read my work on The Athletic, which is a paid website online. It's a sports page that it costs a dollar, $2 a month. I write weekly for them now. My podcast, The GM Shuffle. And then I do a betting show. Really, I don't bet. I never bet. But I do I do a show called The Lombardi Line where it's talking about the games and understanding the betting lines and handicapping who could win and who couldn't, which is really all about making decisions. 
and forecasting the future, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So Michael, I just, I'm so, I feel so grateful that I got this call from somebody so many years ago, just lobbing in <laughs> to say, Hey, we should really have a conversation because we, yeah. we open our books in exactly the same way. Well, um, we, we need, we, once COVID, now that we're all getting shots, we need to get together. That is exactly right. Cause we have not been in the same place at the same time for now. Uh, gosh. A long time. When was the last time? I, I guess it was at a Jeffersonian dinner for the Alliance actually. Yeah, that's right. It was. May, maybe yeah. 15 months ago or so. It was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been so lovely and I'm so grateful that you came on and that we could we could talk about your amazing work. And I am so excited to see the next book that you produce and what everything has in store for you. And thank you so much for being such a great friend to the Alliance. Thank you, Annie. Anytime. At the Alliance for Decision Education, our mission is to improve lives by empowering students with essential decision skills. We're building a national movement to ensure decision education is part of every student's learning experience. Through this podcast, we're raising awareness about the movement, but we need your help. Please share, tweet, and sign the pledge on our website, allianceforddecisioneducation.org. If there's someone you think would be great for us to interview for a future episode, or if you have a question about decision-making that you'd like us to explore on the podcast, email us at connect at allianceforddecisioneducation.org. For listeners interested in following up on any of the materials mentioned today, check out the show notes on the Alliance site, where you'll also find a transcript of today's conversation. Ratings on Apple Podcasts are always greatly appreciated. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite app so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you. And I hope you join us again soon. Mm -hmm.